You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Well, thank, thanks for meeting the people around you. We think that's important. This is the Mill Sunday School. We like to learn, but we also think community is pretty important. And uh, this month, this month of July, is our month's topic of apologetics. Everybody say apologetics. And apologetics is when Christians get together and we feel so sorry for ourselves and we apologize for why we believe. Just kidding. Evan, our speaker today, is going to tell us what the true meaning of apologetics means. It's not just apologizing for our faith. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm so sorry that I believe in this. It's like, no, that's not what it is at all. Anyways, lighten up, everybody. Just, Just a joke. Uh, we, we do have, so we're talking about apologetics, defending our faith, actually, which we'll get into today. But Evan's going to kind of reintroduce the topic this week. Next week, I'm going to talk, I think I want to speak about um, the, the proofs for the existence of God. There's theological, philosophical proofs for the existence of God. And then, and then this month, Matt Ayers, <coughs> another guest speaker, will be here. And so this month is kind of packed full with some good things about why it is we believe as Christians, which I think is pretty important to know that. Don't you think? All right. Okay, so let me introduce Evan. Evan is a missions pastor. He's called the short-term missions pastor of New Life Church, and that's a pretty cool title because Evan used to work for the mill. Anybody around when Evan used to be an associate pastor for the mill? I see those three hands. That was only a few years ago. But uh, Evan did such a good job with missions for the mill that the church said, we need Evan to help us as the whole church with missions. So that was pretty cool for Evan. So his heart is missions. His heart is bringing the gospel to people that have never heard of it in missions contexts. And, and so it's our honor and privilege to have him speaking today about defending our faith, why we believe. So, ladies and gentlemen, Evan Martin. Thanks, All right, how many of you guys went on mill missions this summer? Good, good, good. Welcome back. You guys fully recovered. Went straight back into work and school. Um, I got to see those of you who were in Egypt and then also those of you who were in Germany. And uh, the reports are good, and you guys did some amazing work. We actually have, uh, you'll probably look around and, and think, well, where are some of the people that are typically here? Uh, the missions pastor from the church in Egypt that we partnered with is speaking right across the hallway to the global Sunday school class that we have going on at the same time. So um, let me pray. I am going to um, kind of hit pretty hard and uh, play a little bit of the devil's advocate role. And so uh, hopefully I can uh, shake your faith just a little bit today so that you walk out those doors uh, with a better understanding and not just uh, believing because your friends believe that or because you were born into a Christian household. But um, So don't, don't be afraid, but we are going to kind of shake it up a little bit. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we praise you. We commit this time to you, God. Jesus, we invite your presence into this place. We surrender our hearts, we surrender our minds, and we cast aside all those things that um, would come against us and be a distraction and and that the devil would throw against us, God. And we just say, Jesus, you have a clean slate, and our arms are wide open for, for you to come and speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Quote, Christians are ignorant, arrogant, uneducated, 
hypocritical, fanatical, self-centered, and living in an uninformed fantasy. They will not, and in fact cannot, engage in honest and intelligent discussion about the scientific makeup of our universe and the proper advancements for our global society. I, I think if, if there's one failing point at which college and 20-somethings and 30-somethings and 40-somethings who believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior and stand out as a Christian in American society today, I believe that one of the failing points of that group in society is a lack of understanding of how to engage in a quality conversation with those who have opposite beliefs as us. We live in a city where we have been trained to think that we are the same as the majority of the population in America and around the world. We have mega churches that we are a part of that surround us. We have Christian influences on TV and we sit basically right next to one of the greatest forces of Christian radio that ever existed in James Dobson and Focus on the Family, correct? It's easy for us to think that the whole world is Caucasian conservative Christians, right? And so if we think that we are the same as everyone else, we take our defenses and we kind of cast them aside. It's like living in a peaceable society. You guys, none of you guys, hopefully that that we know have walked into this room today uh, armed with, with a gun or, you know, um, any sort of weapon that you'd think, man, I, 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 better, I better carry this with me today. You never know what's going to happen in global Sunday school or in, or in middle Sunday school, right? So we live in a peaceable society, and so therefore we relax our defenses because we're taken care of by the cumulative group. We are the same, and therefore we stay at peace with each other. But in so doing, I think that, that when our faith is not tested on a daily, weekly, monthly, or even yearly basis, we lose the ability to actually have an educated and proper response when we are faced with somebody who has a different perspective than us. Apologetics, this is in your skillet. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a reasoned defense of a system or idea. In ancient Athens, apologetic discussions often took place in the agora or marketplace. When's the last time you walked down to Chapel Hills Mall, Citadel Mall, um, downtown Colorado Springs on uh, Bijou or Cascade or any street corner down there and engaged in some sort of apologetic discussion? Maybe some of you guys who do outreach in Acacia Park might have that. Um, is that. Is that the cream of the crop of our society and the debates worth listening to, recording, podcasting, copying onto CD and distributing worldwide? I highly doubt that. In Acacia Park, you're going to deal with, if you go there and debate with some of the people, um, you're going you're to deal with people, some of which are educated, most of which are not educated or holding um, a job in today's society. And so could you find that? I would say that's maybe one point on the map of the entire Colorado Springs that you might be able to engage in that sort of thing. But if you went down there with that point, you'd probably just get laughed at, scoffed at, had things thrown at you, right? And the impact that you would make, not so much. But in Athens, the center point of society back in that day, this was commonplace. 
to bring a new idea, to hash it out, to debate it. The, the people who were professionals, the people who were educated would sit in the marketplace and hash that out and talk through some of the things. And that's how policies were decided and that's how, that's how people decided how to live their lives. And, and men would go back to their families with these new ideas and think, man, how I've been living needs to drastically change because of the evidence of the new truth that I found today, right? But that doesn't happen. The closest that we get to it, like I said, would be, would be maybe Acacia Park or a one-sided debate at one of the Colorado Springs Christian churches that you could open up the phone book. Phone book? Who uses a phone book? If you could flip onto Google and figure out, figure out this is the church that I'm going to go to today, you're going you're gonna to get that, but chances are you're going to get that at a sixth grade level, right? Honest? Okay, I need, I need some feedback because I'm going to be pretty sharp-edged against Christianity and, and church with a capital C today. If you show up to a particular church in Colorado Springs on any given Sunday, you will get a sixth grade level sermon thrown out at you telling you that you are a good person and to continue in the struggle of the Christian faith because, oh, it is so difficult to live as a Christian in Colorado Springs. Right? Right? And that's why, that's why the majority of you guys come to Mill Sunday School on a weekly basis, right? That and the bagels and coffee, right? So you guys come because you say, hey, listen, I need something else. My mind is, is developing. You know, your, your, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25 years old. And so, so as, as we're growing and seeking knowledge, we're like, I need something. It's like food to my brain. I don't need to be patted on the back and told that, hey, I'm doing a great job, or, or hey, just keep doing what you're doing. I need somebody to kind of kick me in the teeth and say, man, I was born here, and I am the way I am because of the context in which I live, but I need, to, I need perspective because if one of you guys decides, hey, listen, I'm going to take a job on the East Coast, and you get out there, and, and Joe Kirkendall and myself haven't told you exactly what you may encounter over there, the majority of the people that do that, that would leave Colorado Springs after, after attending the Mill and New Life Church and having the Christian influence and aura around them, could go to the East Coast and be scoffed at to the point at which they decide, you know what, uh, I don't know what I believe. And all these people are pretty sure in what they do and don't believe, and so therefore I'm going to become a little bit more like them, right? Okay. So apologetics is a reasoned defense of a system or idea. Here's, here's one way to look at uh, a reasoned defense. This, this is a chair. This is a chair exactly in the style that uh, you guys are sitting in yourself. And I would, I would bet that 100% of you, when you walked into the room, chose your seat, you sat down in it just like this, right? You didn't look at this and think, who made that chair? I don't know if I want to sit down in that chair. That chair doesn't look too sturdy. I wonder what I wonder what the designs look like on paper. You know, I better see if it'll stick. You know, you you sit in it and you throw your whole weight upon it because you believe in it. Okay? But if somebody walked into this building right now and I called them up on stage and I said, "Hey, I need you to sit in this chair." And I know you have a I know you have a fear of sitting in in chairs that you've never sat in before, how would I convince this person to believe just like you and I blindly believe that this chair will hold his or her weight, right? Here's, here's one of the things that I could do. I could say, listen, 
I've sat in this chair. You can sit in this chair. Well, that doesn't do a whole lot for a person who has a hesitation for sitting in a chair like that, right? See, because my experience will not necessarily lead to their experiment. Because just because I've sat in it and have a history of sitting in a chair like this, that's my experience. But for a person who's never sat in this chair, for me to convince them just because of my experience, that action we are asking and requesting them to experiment. And when you experiment in the realm of trust and faith, that pulls from the very depth of who you are. And I can understand hesitation. And so, just because I sat in it may or may not convince them that that's the appropriate thing to do. And so I could say, look at how many people chose to sit in this type of chair today. 100% of the people in this room have chosen to sit in this exact same type of chair. But they could still argue and hesitate that the wisdom of crowds is not always worth joining right? Because crowds are kind of whimsical and fanatical. And sometimes we jump into the choice based on season or because of what people are doing. Um, A good example of that is how many of you guys are wearing jeans right now? Okay, so a large percentage. How many of you guys are rolling, tight rolling your jeans like was done in the 1980s? Besides Joe Kirkendall. Okay, so the wisdom of crowds has a season to it, right? So they, they could then argue this, this, this individual that we're trying to convince to sit in this chair, they could argue that the wisdom of crowds, that who's to say that the season for that chair has, has not passed, right? And so I can't say, hey, look at how many people have chosen to sit in this chair, therefore you should be able to sit in this chair. So... My other argument, I think, would then therefore go to a company invested lots of money into designing, engineering, and then marketing of this chair. Science, math, and money all attest to the stability of this chair. So the creator of this chair, it might say on the bottom of this chair, I'm not exactly sure who made this, but somebody invested money in research and development and hired a designer to design a chair that looks aesthetically pleasing to the eye so that somebody would purchase it in mass quantities. They designed that chair, and then they hired an engineer to create the actual model of that design so that it could support an individual's weight, right? And then after a model of this chair was produced, they had a salesman market to the masses this particular chair, and therefore then it was bought, and obviously bought in large quantities. And so whoever designed, built, and sold this chair made a lot of money, at least from New Life Church, right? So my argument could be, listen, this chair wasn't thought of yesterday. This chair was designed and influenced and created for a long span of time, resulting in the fact that it's in Colorado Springs, New Life Church, World Prayer Center, today on July 11, 2010, right? So, and it's lasted through them. So the amount of money at which this, this imaginative person might say, well, if science says that I can sit in it, then maybe I can sit in it, right? So that is possibly 
in a, in a very prolonged sense of a conversation, the type of person that we're talking about that we would try to convince of our Christian faith. Does that make sense? Hopefully I didn't like lose you guys in that process. Okay, is that good? Okay. So, if science says it's safe, then I'm sure it's safe. Secular culture now claims that the Christian faith is for the simple-minded and shallow, for those who shut off their brains. Some of you guys know who Ted Turner is. Um, I would say 80 to 90 percent of the people in this room have been influenced by uh, Ted Turner in their lifetime by the companies that he's led. Um, And Ted Turner said this, Christianity is a religion for losers. I guarantee I'll see you in heaven. I've lived a really good life. This is in uh, your skillet. Sam Harris said this in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation. There is, in fact, no worldview more reprehensible in its arrogance than that of a religious believer. Colon, and this is kind of stating what, what he feels like we believe. The creator of the universe takes an interest in me, approves of me, loves me, and will reward me after death. My current beliefs drawn from scripture will remain the best statement of the truth until the end of the world. Everyone who disagrees with me will spend an eternity in hell. So um, I think we just opened up a window to what the world outside of Colorado Springs believes. And maybe probably what you would get to if you went far enough south in Colorado Springs, right? But if you stick around the northern side uh, and the central part of Colorado Springs um, and that's all you've ever done and, and you, come to, you come to New Life and you went to Colorado Springs Christian High School and, um, and you have friends that it's, you go from one mill small group to the next every day of the week and you go on missions and all that stuff, then then I think this might be kind of the opening of that window to, wow, other people in the world believe differently than what I've been taught to believe here. When the beliefs of Christians are questioned or their rights infringed upon, their response is generally hostile, verbose, sulky, uneducated, dramatic, and without critical thought. If an anti-religious topic is taken to the national level, you can expect boycotts and heated Christian radio rants. That's what we're trying to live our faith amidst and defend our faith against. So what does the Bible have to say? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. See, atheists can rage against the Christian faith because whenever atheists open up their mouth and try to convince Christians of their perspective, Christians rage against atheists. And they send heated and hate-filled letters to the authors and the movie makers and the people in politics and, and on TV, and they, they point at them and say, you're wrong because of this, this, and this, but they do it in hate-filled language. And so that just fuels 
the fire of, of atheists saying Christians are arrogant and they're uneducated and their responses are so similar. Every single response that a Christian gives to an atheist, it's not new, it's not thought-provoking, it's just, it's just kind of accusational and slanderous against the case that the atheist brought against Christianity. But the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. And so we're supposed to do this, and how do you, how do you debate with gentleness? You can debate with gentleness when you are filled with knowledge and the assurance of truth. But if you get into, an, into a debate and you, and you feel over your head, then immediately your defense mechanism goes up and you feel like you're being accused of something that you can't defend. And so instead of defending, you accuse back. And so that's, what, that's where this cycle has begun. And I think, I think the cycle only stops when a society like ours, a, a, a demographic like ours, says, you know what? Stops with me. I'm going to get educated. I'm going to be informed. I'm going to, I'm going to study, study, study. The, in, my, in my downtime, I'm going to pick up the Bible. In my downtime, I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble and Borders and peruse some of these books um, of, of the Christian faith, but also see what, what the world is talking about and what their accusations are against us. But if we just continue to get a sixth grade education once a week thrown at us and then we walk away and fill our bellies at lunch and take a nap in the afternoon and think that everything's okay because of where we live, then aren't we, aren't we degressing instead of progressing? Right? Matthew ten sixteen, Jesus says this. He says this to his disciples as he sent them out. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That's a verse you could think about, you could discuss, you could take a lot of time just praying, asking God, God, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? So we're not going to get into that. I just wanted to mention that that as, as you go out... Um, and, and talk to people and interact with people in your classes at Pikes Peak and UCCS and wherever else, um, know that you're a sheep among wolves, but you're also supposed to be as shrewd as snakes, but then also as innocent as doves, okay? Okay, understanding atheism. The burden of, of proof is upon us as Christians. It's our job to convince an atheist and a non-believer or a believer of another religion that Christianity is true with a capital T. It, we can't sit back and think that the attraction of our building or our programs or even our lifestyle is so magnetic that somebody's going to make a life-altering decision and come and follow us. Um, you know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But he said that to Christians. He didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't say that to a secular society, right? So we can't, just, we can't just live and state to a secular society, follow me as I follow Christ. That means nothing um, to, to a secular society. It, it, might even, it might even be laughable to them. So the burden of proof is upon us. That means that we have to engage in discussion and debate even though debate i don't like that word because because that kind of breeds the antagonistic approach 
we understand atheism when we think about our response to the claims of Islam. So you have to, when you're, when you're interacting with people who don't believe in God, you have, to, you have to acknowledge, I understand what it's like for them to not have a belief. Because they don't believe in Christianity the exact same way as we don't believe in Islam. How many of you guys lost sleep last night because you, you laid in your bed thinking, what if Islam is true and Christianity is not true? That has devastating impact on our life, but we dismiss it and we don't leave, lose sleep over it, right? Because why? Because the burden of proof for Islam is upon Islam. They have to convince us that that is the one true way. And so atheists are the same way in thinking about Christianity. Atheists didn't lose sleep last night about Christian thought and dogma because, because the proof is on us. Okay, So we understand atheism when we think about our response to the claims of Islam. Understanding truth, this is, I believe, in your uh, skillet also. Truth is both offensive, offensive, making certain assertions, and defensive, making cogent and sensible responses to counterpoints which are raised. So when we're talking about truth, we have to understand that we can't just sit back as a Christian society and defend ourselves. We have to be on the offensive, okay? But then when we do get into those discussions and when we do engage with the people that we pass on the campus of the colleges that we go to and in, in the places that we work, we, we have to be able to make cogent and sensible responses, which is, which is meaning relevant and to the point. We have to, we have to be sensible in our responses, okay? We have to be knowledgeable. Okay, right now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through this because I want you guys to be able to turn amongst each other at your table or split up or some of you guys in the chairs can join tables or just debate amongst each other. I'm going to give you, hopefully if we go through these fast, um, six topics, and I'm going to give you our perspective and the perspective of an atheist. And that's not, that's not exactly the right term for it, but um, it's the perspective of a non-believer, okay? Um, an atheist would believe that there is no God, um, but I would say categorically you could say this is the perspective of anyone who's a, uh, who does not believe in the Christian faith. So these are, these are six topics. As, as you listen to me kind of read through some of these um, perspectives and responses, I want, I want your table, you can kind of even make eye contact or, or say it to each other, hey, let's, let's talk about this one. Okay, because I'm going to give you six, um, and then I want you guys, as we split up, to take one of those topics, and, there's, and I want one person at the table to be the devil's advocate and basically deny your Christian faith for a brief moment, um, not fully, um, but just pretend, world, um, to, to basically debate and have an intelligent conversation with the people around you, um, the perspective of a non-Christian believer. Okay, and so here, here are the topics, and I'm going to go through them, and then I'll tell you when to break out. The Ten Commandments. Number two is the endurance of the Christian faith. Number three is life begins at conception. Number four, the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition. Number five is Jesus of Nazareth. Number six is the Bible. Okay, so think about that. Ten Commandments, endurance of the Christian faith, life begins at conception, the Crusades and Spanish Inquisition, Jesus of Nazareth, and the Bible. Okay, Ten Commandments. 
an atheist perspective would be this. The Ten Commandments are too basic to be inspired by the one and only true deity. They are not original. They are not the supreme statement of morality. Therefore, the Bible is not the clearest statement of morality the world has ever seen. They might reference Jaism or other religions where um, the core of that belief system is absolute peace, meaning do no harm to anyone or anything around you. Okay, And so, so the morality issue of the Ten Commandments is that it's too basic and not, not far enough on the moral spectrum. Our response would be the subjects to whom the Ten Commandments were presented were Jewish nomads, formerly slaves of the Egyptians, now wandering through the desert. The Ten Commandments were the start or a foundation of a system of law for a nation yet to be birthed. Later, Jesus summed up the Jewish legal and religious system by stating in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay? Does that make sense? It's just given a very, very brief overview of one of those topics, and I want you guys to go in and debate it. The endurance of the Christian faith. Our perspective, Christianity is, by population, the largest religion in the world. Nearly 2,000 years have passed since it began to spread throughout the known world. During that time, other religions have ceased to exist, and still other religions have been birthed, but none stronger or more globally influential as Christianity. An atheist would rebut, the fact that other religions have failed only lends to the point that Christianity will one day also be extinct. As to the greatness of its population, numbers rarely have anything to do with truth, but rather convenience. Okay? Life begins at conception. Okay, think about this and think about how much you've studied this. Okay, we've all voted. Potentially, potentially all of us here have voted one way or the other um, in electing political figures or even, even if you haven't cast a specific vote in this direction, no doubt you've been engaged in conversation dealing with life begins at conception, okay? An atheist would say this to you if he caught you at UCCS um, proclaiming your Christian faith and your beliefs. An atheist would say, Christians believe blindly and completely without research that life begins at conception. Yet you wouldn't think of changing your opinion even if I told you that the blastocyst or stem cell is a collection of only 150 cells. Can that contain a soul? The brain of a fly is made up of more than 100,000 cells. The majority of you have never done an hour of research on this topic, yet you would never vote for a political figure who endorsed stem cell research. And stem cell research, he would argue, would, would be in effort to alleviate the suffering of humanity globally. And we as moderate conservative Christians are holding back such a good force in the earth because we claim that life begins at conception in a 150-cell in, in blastocyst. And because we're protecting something that sits in a Petri dish, we are letting people who are dying of cancer and other horrible diseases suffer and continue in their suffering because we're protecting something that is 150 cells when all of us in this room have no doubt swatted a fly at some point in our life, doing greater devastation to nature, capital N, than, than what the scientists of our day 
are doing to blastocysts or stem cells, right? Our perspective on life begins at conception. Although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed. The combination of 23 chromosomes present in each pronucleus results in 46 chromosomes in the zygote. Thus, the diploid number is restored and the embryonic genome is formed. The embryo now exists as a genetic unity, arguing that that, in fact, is a human being progressing into becoming what each and every one of us is today. Right? Okay, that one could be a very heated discussion, as you could, as you could tell. The Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, this just gives you a, a brief perspective. Maybe none of you guys are going to debate this topic, but this will give you kind of a perspective of what other people believe. Our perspective. These periods of Christian history were led by greedy and delusional individuals who did not truly understand the Bible or its principles. Right? So to judge Christianity on those time periods and in that frame of reference where, where leaders of the Christian faith and of the known world at that time sent people out to convert to Christianity or die by torture. Um, and if you've seen any of those sites or the mechanisms for torture um, for the Spanish Inquisition, um, I did in, in Peru have seen some of those sites and seen some of those mechanisms and it is horrific. The worst movies you've ever seen don't even come close to the gruesomeness of what Christians in their day designed to torture for a result of hopefully conversion to uh, innocent and unknowing human beings. So we would say, don't judge us based on those delusional individuals, right? An atheist would say, the Bible and its teachings, which you describe as the perfectly inspired word of God, are so muddled that these historical atrocities were possible. Ouch. Right? Is, it, is the Bible not clear enough to tell somebody who is delusional and those people who follow him that what they're doing at that, at that point in time is grossly wrong and negligent according to uh, the principles of the Bible? Jesus of Nazareth. An atheist perspective is this. It is incredibly arrogant and ignorant to state that only by following your Christian rules and system of belief Will, will one gain eternal life and be rewarded in heaven for the good deeds you have done on this earth? Our perspective, this is what we could bring up uh, when talking about uh, Jesus of Nazareth to somebody who doesn't believe. Bypassing theological details, we could argue as Blaise Pascal reasoned, he was the, he was the famous 17th century mathematician who, who became a Christian, actually, um, and so he was one of the most brilliant minds of his time, still one of the most brilliant individuals who's ever lived. Um, but we could argue with an, ace, an atheist on, on his uh, pontificating point that a belief in Christianity is the wiser of two bets. You could just sit and say, if, if, somebody, if, if you're talking with somebody and they are just totally shut down and they're like, listen, no matter what you say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to believe what, what you believe, you could say, Listen, you don't, ha you don't even have to truly go into another belief to start leaning in this direction because it's just the wiser of two bets. Because if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the ramifications are, are catac catac cataclysmic, right? Because if, if an atheist is wrong in his bet, then the ramifications are huge. But if Christian is wrong, then we're just in the same boat as everybody else, right? If Jesus wasn't true.
So we would also we would also state in the line of C.S. Lewis that Jesus of Nazareth was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, right? Because he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so a person to do that, in order to do that, would either have to be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Okay, last one. I'm going to let you guys debate. The Bible. An atheist perspective. From an outside perspective, the Bible is contradictory and inaccurate. The Bible is not remotely divinely inspired because if it were, a loving God would have included the cure for today's diseases, alleviating human suffering and proving that an omniscient being exists. An atheist would say, okay, if the, if the Holy Bible is the inspired word of God, then why didn't the divine deity write into those scriptures by one of uh, the over 40 authors, why didn't one of those individuals include the cure for cancer, the cure for HIV, uh, in some way put um, a high standard of morality and um, the, the ending of human suffering? Why didn't they put anything in regards to science into that, into that book so that the scientists of today can't so easily discount it? All right? Our perspective, you'd throw out 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, that would probably be discounted very quickly by somebody who doesn't believe the Bible. By saying the Bible is proving the Bible, um, they'd say, why should I believe that? Okay. Um, um, one, of the, one of the arguments that you, could, that you could throw out to somebody who's bent on math and science and the advancements of our society for today and why didn't... Um, such an archaic book uh, relate to us in in our in our modern day society in a better way. You could throw out to them that that's the fallacy of the supremacy of our time, saying that we the time in which we live is is supreme amongst any other time, right? And so why why doesn't the Bible make any reference for the internet? Well, that's that's absolutely retarded for for somebody to throw out that argument because. Because you would, you would argue, not with that word, but you would argue that, that listen, that means that you are saying the supremacy of our time reigns and that the Bible should have made mention about something that exists in our day, right? But even the, even the guy who we quoted earlier, Blaise Pascal, he invented a, a math machine, okay? And you can, you can look at it and it's like, how to calculate these things, and he made like a hundred of them, and it's, it's knobs, and it's things that, that you, can, you can basically do math equations on to a simplistic degree, right? And so if, if I was best friends with Pascal during that time, and I was arguing as he, as he was turning towards Christianity, if I argued that point, well, pa- Pascal, you're inventing this thing that's going to change our society, Right? Why doesn't the Bible mention that in all of its divinity? And, and he would probably say, just like what we're saying, that's the fallacy of, the, of believing the, the supremacy of our time, right? Because who's to say? Think about how quickly our society has advanced from, I didn't have an email address when I went to college. I had no comprehension of what an email was when I went to college, okay? Now, I wish I had no comprehension of what an email actually was right and so the advancements of the size of our computer uh you could go to starbucks or any college campus right now and what used to be housed in in 
a huge room is now put into somebody's briefcase and now even so much so that it's in the form of a phone, right? And so, and so how ignorant for us to think. So does that make sense? So that, I'm going to leave that open-ended and you can do that. And then I think also uh, a, an easy out for Christians in trying to defend the Bible is um, to, to basically say, if somebody was attacking a lion, say I owned a lion and somebody was attacking a lion, I wouldn't have to stand in defense of that lion, would I? I just have to let it out of its cage, right? And so if somebody, if somebody wants to attack the Bible, then a simple response would be, how much of it have you read and how much have you, have it, have you allowed to sit and dwell and think about um, in that thing? Okay, so I'm going to give you guys, um, let's see, seven, six minutes. I'm going to give you guys six minutes because I want to leave a couple... Um, of moments for questions and for you guys to stand up. I know, I know there's probably thoughts going through your minds that you want to share with the whole, with the whole room. So turn, turn to your table and uh, debate, and then um, we're going to hear about it. So... Okay, I have a couple of roving microphones, and I want, I want a table to nominate... Shh, am I on? I'm on, but everybody's ignoring me. Okay, that's good. Okay, so I want um, two tables to nominate either um, their devil's advocate or the person who did best at defending the Christian faith. Who wants to nominate their all-star at their table? Anybody? All right, right there. Can we get a mic? Kirkendall's got a mic. All righty. Higgins has a mic. Okay, tell us. Okay, tell us your name. Tell us the argument your table uh, was was talking about, and then your stance on that argument. Should I stand, stand up? up? Stand up. Uh, my name's Neil, and our table we were talking about Jesus of Nazareth and. Uh, it went back and forth. Hang on. <laughs> uh, I was defending it um, against the idea that um, uh, it was a made-up story, I think, right? Is that... I'm not sure what else to say now. <laughs> okay. Um, how, did the, how did the discussion go? What were some of the points that you made or some of the points that you were trying to defend? Um, I used the, I guess, the, uh, the C.S. Lewis trilemma argument. Uh, you mentioned over and against the idea that they were liars or... Um, that Jesus was a liar or deluded, and that the apostles were liars and deluded in proclaiming the resurrection yep. and stuff, and that um, we can't believe that they're liars because they prove their sincerity by going to their deaths, teaching what they're yep. saying. Uh, we can't believe that they're psychologically crazy because um, uh, the Gospels contain profound wisdom and, and crazy people aren't wise. Okay. And so the only option left is the truth, that they're telling the truth. Okay, good. Who has, who has an argument against him? Say your name one more time. Uh, Neil. Neil. Okay. Who has an argument against Neil really quick that would grab the other mic and say, well, Neil, did you think about this? Anybody? Bueller. Okay, here we go. TBD. You had plenty. All right. Here, we got it. Patrick has it. Um, with, as we saw with James Warren Jones, uh, sometimes people can be lying 
and still die for it. Okay, good. So, so some people can continue to believe a lie in such that they're that they're willing to die for it, right? Okay, an argument against against Neil would be um, there are crazy people who believe in Islam that strap bombs to themselves or hijack airplanes and die for a cause. So, if, so if I went into UCCS or Pikes Peak Community College and said, "Listen, twelve men followed Jesus, some of whom." the majority of whom died, even the people that they've talked to died for the belief that they had. And so all that somebody would have to say to me is September 11th, 2001. Right? So we have to be, we have to be prepared. But yeah, we can, we can base something on an argument that C.S. Lewis stated. C.S. Lewis didn't live through September 11th and see the oncoming uh, fight of Islam against, against the secular world. Right? So were they... Were they liars, lunatic, or did they believe that, that that actually was the truth and in fact that was? It's a, it's a heated debate. Now, one of the things that I'll say is this, is that non-believers are going to start to group Christianity in with all other religions and make the statement that religion is a hindrance to our development as a society because religion forces us into different systems of belief and keeps us segregated and and therefore all religion is bad and so here's here's what you have to realize when you argue and and think through those things that we see the difference fundamentally uh between christianity and islam but non-religious people see two groups non-religious and religious and they think that religious people are holding science back so somebody else wants to stand up and talk about what they debated and defend their argument. Anybody? Aaron Higgins. I will. Okay. Um, I actually played devil's advocate in regards to uh, human life beginning at uh, conception or human life in general. Uh, my argument was, is, yeah, it's a unique collection of cells, but whoop de doo This happens all the time in the animal world. There's nothing special about it. To which uh, Sam countered, uh, <laughs> what did you counter, Sam? <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I countered that um, it's that we are unique and special because we're human beings and we are made in the, in the likeness of, of God and... Um, also that we don't see the animal world going out and getting abortions. You know, like, life is precious. Their children are precious to them, and you do see them, you know, eating their kids if they're really hungry. But <laughs> <laughs> but you don't see them going out and terminating their pregnancies, and that when most women find out that they're pregnant... Um, their baby already has hands and feet and a heartbeat and fingernails and mm -hmm. it's already a person. It's not just a collection of cells. Yeah. Good. Anybody want to make a statement along those lines for or against back here, Patrick, that table, raise your hand so he can see you. There you go. Do you mind if I, if I tell you how my mother used to be? Say that again? Do you mind if I tell you how my mother used to be before she got saved? 
I'll tell you, she was an atheist before. Sorry, sorry the speakers are just pointing oh. the opposite direction. My mother, she was an atheist her okay. whole entire life almost. Okay. Because she's been saved for 10 years now. Now she's a licensed minister. Minister, I mean. Wow. She, wow. Now she has nine kids. And she had, one time, my sister, four years ago, she broke her arm in half. And got, she was in no pain at all. We took her to the doctor. And the doctor checked her arm. She was moving back and forth. There was no pain at all. It was broken in half. And then the next day, it was healed the next day because of her big surgery. Wow. It was healed the next day. Awesome. So my mother, she's just been reading the Bible and everything. Now she's blessed. She's happy. She works two jobs. A license at the daycare, the Bible daycare, some mm-hmm. downtown, no, not downtown, it's around here somewhere. Yep. And she works at a church, nursery, at Sunrise Church. Now she's blessed. She's awesome. I don't know what. Good. She's married. And she's married for a whole year now. Good. That's it. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Okay. So, Joel. Um, I was just going to say in favor that, uh, oh, sorry, Um, that human life starts at conception. At the moment of conception, the entire pattern for a human being is there, from the gender down to the fingerprints. Um, All that information is there. And to say that a human life, a human embryo is no more valuable than a fly, what did a fly ever do for anybody? And um, what have animals ever made to help anyone else? And there is something special in humans more so even than monkeys. People make things to help people. People can create. People, even if you don't believe in God, that we are created in the image and likeness of God, there is something distinctly special about us. And if, if you kill that embryo in the attempt to cure cancer, you may be killing the person who will invent that cure for cancer. So. Good. Good. All right, Joel. Okay, my name is Joel. Um, I was gonna kind of play the devil's advocate a little bit on this of one. Of course you were. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sam, your your statement that by the time most girls are are aware that they're pregnant, um, the baby has already taken form. It's kind of removing the argument from the idea that life begins at conception. We're saying you're saying that that now because I know, and it's got a form of a human, then, well, we're already way past conception at this point. And as far as what you were saying, um, there are literally thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people born every single day, and nobody's come up with a cure for cancer or HIV yet. So for us to say, well, maybe there's potential for this. Yeah, there's also potential for Hitler's, and there's potential for people who brought up the Spanish Inquisition. So maybe I'm killing the next Hitler to find the cure for cancer. So. Okay, good point. (laughs) All right. Uh, See how this is is such uh, a good practice and exercise? Because when you sit amongst peers and do this in a non-threatening situation, you understand how many Bible verses jump to jump to the back of your mind, um, things that you're thinking of that you just can't verbalize. But if you practice this and if you put it in front of you and if you say, listen, I'm going to become an expert in some of these areas so that, so that we as young Christians are the ones that are writing the essays and getting, getting doctorate degrees in, in these subjects in defense of the Christian faith, but if we choose to be 
just the average individual who goes through life based on the fact that your mom listened to Dr. Dobson and focused on the family like it was its own religion, right? Because we're grabbing the coattails of those who have gone before us and we've skated through like like somebody who's going to inherit the wealth of nations. And so... I don't know if I don't know what you felt like, but what if we had invited fifteen or twenty atheists who were educated, had engaged in debates, had talked with people about these things from all spheres of life, and said, "Now, okay, you at your table have to defend, but instead of it being a mock defense, it's the real thing." How many of of our tables would have quote-unquote, won that debate. I don't know. It's just, it's just a training exercise to really put us into a place of thinking, man, I would love to go get more education or I would love to engage in this sort of discussion in small groups or uh, at my school or at my place of work just in passing. Um, so I would encourage you to go out and, and read books, dive into the Bible, but also dive into it from the perspective of somebody who's never read it before or who comes into reading the Bible uh, with, with a perspective of this is, this is a fallacy, this is untrue, okay? Um, let me just end with a couple of things. We should know our subject and we should know our subject profoundly and share it simply. We have to have a depth of knowledge, but we can't speak over people's heads. Okay, we have to bring it back to the chair. I've thrown my whole weight into that chair, but I can't convince somebody based on my experience to experiment in my faith. So I have to know it inside and out. I should know who designed it. I should know who engineered it. I should know who sold it. I should be, I should be able to attest to the integrity of the salesman who sold me this chair that I can trust to sit in it with my whole weight. Does that make sense in a simple way? Also, you would never do this. Hopefully you would never do this. And I'm not encouraging you to go and test this out. You would never jump into your car with a friend of yours and have you sit in the driver's seat and put a blindfold on and then back your car out of the, driver, out of the parking space and drive based completely on the direction of the individual in the passenger seat no matter how great a friend that person was to you, or even if they were a close relative, right? But in Christian faith, sometimes we find ourselves sitting in the driver's seat of our faith, and our experience is based on completely on a trust of somebody who's trying to see and guide for us. Does that make sense? Because my mom and my dad were Christians who who made massive sacrifices to send me to a Christian school, K-12, through and then on to Oral Roberts University to get a degree. I can't be a Christian just because they believed in Christ. Just the same as I wouldn't get in my car and say, all right, Mom, tell me when to turn, tell me when to stop, tell me when to go, and trust that she sees that I can make it through a yellow light before it turns red, Right? But some of us sit here and appreciate a sixth grade level education once a week. Enough said, right? Um, a Boy Scout badge Christianity. 
as you go through Boy Scouts or Royal Rangers or, or things like that, you get badges for being able to tie knots and to start a fire and to uh, walk an elderly woman across the street, right? All those things, right? Sometimes as we move through this stage of life, and I guarantee you'll have the temptation to do this, as you move out of college and 20-somethings and into 30-somethings and into 40-somethings and start your family and, and your career and move on to that up the hill of life, you'll have, you'll have the pretext and the pretense to think, I've done this, I've checked it off the list, and therefore it's no longer required of me. I've tied eight types of knots and I got the badge and therefore I don't have to tie knots anymore. I went on mill missions once and therefore I don't have to evangelize or travel overseas in defense of my Christian faith ever again, Right? I went to Sunday school when I was in college, so therefore, I've done it. Okay? Here's the deal. Sometimes some of us will feel very far away from God and we'll, we won't really know where to find Him and we will be attacked by the people in our life and the circle in which we run to believe that what we once believed was not true but actually just a supposition of lies made up by the people that that were forced to believe based in the context in which they lived, okay? So that, so that we'll be told that our faith was really second-hand or third-hand information, and therefore your doubts are true because they were never founded upon something to begin with. And we'll feel very far from God at times in our life, and we won't know where to reach back and find Him. This happened to me yesterday. I was upstairs and in my house, and uh, Noah is my five-year-old son, and he ran downstairs thinking that I was down there. And to a five-year-old, if you, if, if you get into a section or a portion of your house and you're the only one there, it feels very lonely and very scary at times, especially if the lights are out and especially if you think that your daddy was down there. And so I'm upstairs and all of a sudden I hear Noah screaming for me, Daddy, d- Daddy, and Mama, Daddy's not down there. Where's, where's Daddy? And he had this rush of emotion but my one-year-old, Ethan, who's just, who just started walking uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, it, he started saying, Daddy, Daddy, and he walked out of the room in which I was over to the, over to the top of the stairs and, and told my five-year-old, Daddy, Daddy, and turned around and walked him to me. So this is the point of that. That at times when you feel like you don't know where your father is, it's best to go to your brothers and sisters in Christ who know where he is and draw close to him. Does that make sense? Because when you don't know where he is, chances are that somebody in this room or somebody in your circle of influence will know where he is. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for a setting that's been established here at New Life Church where, where we can dwell on these things, where, where we can push the pause button and say, okay, this is really what we truly believe and and this is how I'm going to think about it. And so, God, we take, we, we take the wrecking ball that we took to some of the presuppositions of our faith, and we say, God, heal us. Pour out your wisdom upon us, God. We seek revelation and understanding from you. And so we surrender our lives to you, and we say that we are completely yours. Reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen.